0: There is a a sociological construct known as the bystander effect. Anybody ever heard of that? The bystander effect says that if you were seated in a small coffee shop or something, and it was just you and one stranger over there, and they took a bite of their scone and choked on it, that you, looking around the rest of the coffee shop and realizing you're the only other person there, even if you don't know how to do the Heimlich maneuver or how to properly uh, go about assisting them in the midst of their choking, you would try something in order to help them. You'd run over there and smack them on the back a few times, or you would do something in order to try to help them. On the flip side, if you were in a restaurant and it was really crowded, and someone even just one table over from you started to choke, you would think to yourself, there are a lot of people here, somebody else will take care of it. In fact, the bystander effect says that everyone in the restaurant would think that, and that there's a chance that no one would go and help that individual. If we're in a spot where there are multiple people capable of acting, the bystander effect says we will alleviate Ourself of any responsibility. What we're going to see this morning is that when it comes to our personal holiness, there's a little bit of a bystander effect that happens within the church. Somebody else will worry about living a holy life. There are tons of believers. If my life isn't perfect, which no one's life could be. If my life isn't striving to look like Christ's, if I'm failing visibly in some certain areas, it's OK because there are a lot of believers, and somebody else will worry about living a holy life. What Peter's going to walk us through this morning in Second Peter 2, four through 12, is that our holiness is a collective effort. We live in an individual individualistic society. We think of individual first, group second. That's just how we are in America. There are societies in the world today that they think of group first, community first, individual second. Peter's readers here uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey in these churches, they were communal-type societies. They thought of group first, individual second. When we read in Scripture and we see... Things talk about the church. We interpret that for me personally. But when Peter wrote about the church, he meant the church, all of the church. And so we're going to see him talk to the entire church this morning. And he's going to finish his general encouragement that believers should live holy lives. And so if you've got a Bible and you want to open up to 1 first, first Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, I'm going to recap while you you get yourself situated there. We began a few weeks ago, and we looked at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, and it's just packed full of truth, just declarative truth about who we are as believers in Jesus and who God is and what the gospel means for us. And Peter kind of lumped those, or I lumped Peter's truths into a few categories, that this is not our home. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross on your behalf, then you have an eternal home, and you're merely passing through this one. That everything that you do and the way that you live your life ought to be dictated by your true home, which is eternal and in heaven and is going to be sinless and in the presence of Jesus and in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. You should live defined by that, not by what you experience in the here and now, because this is just temporary. You're passing through a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The second thing, kind of category that we saw in Peter's truths, is that you've got this indestructible hope. That that future home cannot be taken away from you. There's nothing that could happen here that a group of people who aren't Christian and are persecuting you, there's nothing they could do to you that could take away the reality of your indestructible hope. And Peter says, but suffering may come. Persecution may come. People might not understand you. They may treat you poorly because you're a believer. And that's okay. Because it's just temporary. And God wants to use it to sanctify you. He's got a purpose for it. And then over all of that, we need to remember that our Savior has come. And that our faith rests on Him. And He's coming back again. And when He comes back again, we're going to go and we're going to be with Him forever. And those truths set as the foundation for everything that Peter says going forward. And so this first discussion that he has, beginning in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, through what we're going to look at today, 1 Peter 2, verse 12, is all about holiness and this general encouragement to believers to live holy lives. And he gave motivation for that, that you've got a relationship with a loving Father, that you should have reverent fear of an impartial judge, and that you should have an appropriate understanding and appreciation for the cost of redemption that Christ paid for you on the cross. And then he offered a picture of that, that as we grow in our holiness, that should play itself out in visible love, self-sacrificing kind of love for brothers and sisters within the church. And that the Word, Scripture, the Bible, gives us this enduring picture of what our holiness should look like. And then today he's going to offer two more encouragement kind of truths that you can just stand on and rest on and know for your entire life. And then he's going to give a final encouragement in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 that's going to kind of launch us into the the next portion of Peter's letter. And so the first truth there this morning that we're going to see is that the church is a holy temple, and Jesus is the cornerstone. The first, let's look at uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 8. It says this, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter's first encouragement is that we, all of us, collectively, are a holy temple to the Lord, and that Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple. It helps today to understand a couple of Old Testament ideas. The first is the idea of the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was to be the place where the presence of God uniquely dwelt within His His people, and the fullness of God's presence dwelled there. And it was the place where sacrifices for sin were offered, and where worship was to take place. And it was centered there in Jerusalem and. Everyone was to go there in order to be in the presence of the Lord. In fact, Solomon, when they built the temple and dedicated it, he gives this incredible prayer where he prays that all the nations of the earth would come to and see the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and see and understand his goodness. The temple was the visual representation of God's presence in the world. And it was supposed to be a spot where all the nations of, of the earth, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, would see the goodness of God and His presence there. It was glorious, and its splendor was unlike anything that the, that the world had seen at that time. And people were supposed to be drawn to it. That's what the temple was for. And then at the beginning of the New Testament, what we have is the New Testament, Jesus is born. And now the fullness of God's presence is no longer confined within the walls of a stone building, but instead it's living and walking around among humanity. Then Jesus becomes, his body becomes the place where sacrifice for sin is offered. And he hangs there on the cross. And he's resurrected and he ascends into heaven. And the spirit is sent to dwell within anyone who places their faith in him. So now that the church is the dwelling place of the Lord. We read that, and we think, just me. I, in my heart, is where the Lord dwells, and that is true. But Peter makes a point here, as we're going to see, that that's collective. The church, big C, global, all the brothers and sisters in Christ, anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus, that is where the unique presence of the Lord dwells, and it is to be this light to the world. He says it this way, As you come to Him... Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He uses this temple imagery that everyone is being built together, that we're all these stones. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that, that everything else stands on. Everything else is built together on top of. And he says that Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. What an encouragement to persecuted believers. Here I am in my church, you know, in Cappadocia or Bithynia or wherever the case might be, and everybody in my city has rejected me, but everybody rejected Jesus too. And it didn't matter because in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. That you could be the scorn of everyone else that you live around or work with. You could be the scorn of everyone at your school, or whatever the case might be, because you're living a holy lifestyle. And Peter says, that's okay, because Jesus was too. And yet, he understood that his ultimate identity came from the fact that he was chosen and precious in the sight of the Lord. What an incredible encouragement to his believers. It's a truth that comes out of those first 12 verses, that God knows you and your circumstances. To the believers who were present in these churches scattered throughout uh, modern-day Turkey, they were experiencing some persecution. It wasn't pleasant. And Peter reminded them, God knows where you are. He sees you. He hears you. He understands what you're going through. He's placed you there in that city to be a believer for a reason. And even though your holy living might cause you some undue persecution, some unearned ridicule, it's okay. God knows that's where you are. He has you there for a reason. And he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you join with everybody else who's ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ and being built into this temple. Christ is the cornerstone. Everything else is built up on top of him. And it has this ring to it, right, of Romans 12, where Paul says, offer your lives, as a living sacrifice. That's what happens in the temple. That's what goes on in the temple. You're being built into that house. Our lives, collectively, as the church, the life of the church is to be this holy temple where spiritual sacrifices are offered. We don't come together on Sunday mornings and offer animals any longer. We offer our praises. We offer our time. We offer our gifts and and finances to the spread of the gospel. We offer um, ourselves in prayer to the Lord and in a willingness to go and to do what it is that he calls us to do and to be obedient. That is our spiritual sacrifice. Collectively, as a body, the church is to be the visual representation of God's presence in the world today. All of us. It's not something where you say, there's a Christian over there on the other side of the room. They'll be the temple. No, we are the temple. And Peter offers three Old Testament references to support this. Two of them come from Isaiah. One of them comes from the book of Psalms. He says, behold, this is from Isaiah, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the, honor is due for, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The entirety of the church... This temple stands on the cornerstone of Jesus. And for those who do so, there's only going to be glory and honor. But for those who don't, there's going to be shame. They're going to stumble over the cornerstone. They're going to stand before the Lord at the time of judgment. And they're going to stumble over the fact that Jesus was the only means by which salvation was possible. And they didn't place their faith in him. They're going to stumble. You're going to be honored. It's this encouragement. The church stands on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The church is a holy temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, all of us. That's a truth, Peter says. And then he goes on to point out another one. Look at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is a holy priesthood. And Jesus grants us access. Some quick Old Testament priest history, if you will. The priestly class among the Israelite people were Levites, those who were descended from the tribe of Levi. Aaron, was Moses' brother, was the first priest. They were in charge of all the duties surrounding the temple. They offered sacrifices. Before there was a temple, they moved around the tabernacle and the ark, and that was where the presence of the Lord dwelt. And then they took care of all the stuff inside the temple— That was their role, and one person was designated as a high priest, and he had incredible responsibility because one time a year, he would go into what was known as the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's where the presence of the Lord literally dwelt. It filled this room called the Holy of Holies, and he would go in there one time a year to offer a sacrifice for sin on behalf of the entire Israelite community, and as he went into there, he would have to be ritually cleaned and totally, totally pure. And so he would go through this process, and he would wear these certain clothes, and they would tie a rope around his waist, and they would put some bells on him. In the event that he got in there, and he wasn't correctly ritually clean, and he dropped dead in the presence of the Lord, they could yank him out of there by the rope. One time a year, one individual had this special access to the presence of God. One tribe of people, the Levites, had special access to the presence of the Lord that they could offer these sacrifices. Priests were set apart to come near to the presence of God. Their entire life was supposed to look a particular way. You can read all about it in the book of Leviticus. It's probably boring to you. It's kind of boring to me. But there was a particular way that these Levites were supposed to live. Set apart in order to come near to the presence of God in the workings of the temple. And then what happens when Jesus is hanging on the cross is remarkable because as he's hanging there, we're told that the veil was rent in two. It was torn. What separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies is torn apart when Jesus is on the cross. And it's this incredible symbol that now anyone, by faith in Christ, can come directly into the presence of the Lord. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have access to to the presence of the Lord. We can all come near to Him by faith. It's a huge encouragement. Peter explains it this way. You are a chosen race. There are a lot of people reading this letter who were not Jewish. They were Gentile. They were just regular people, if you will. And to hear that they're the chosen race, it's no longer just about Jewish individuals. I'm part of the chosen race. I'm part of what Peter calls the royal priesthood. So it's not just Jewish people and then priests. No, everybody. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You're a part of that priesthood now. You're a holy nation set apart to display the goodness of God to the ends of the earth. There is no elite class who carries the responsibility of living in the presence of the Lord. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are that person. It's not the task of super Christians or career ministry workers. We've all been brought near to the presence of the Lord thanks to the work of Jesus on the cross. Which means this, that the church is set apart to come near to the presence of God. All of us. It's the function of the church. And then he tells you why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You didn't used to be a people, Peter says, but now you are. You didn't used to have mercy, but now you have mercy. You exist as a royal priesthood collectively, all of us, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light, which means we've got to use our words. If you've experienced mercy If you understand that you went from sinful and broken and destined for eternity apart from the Lord, and now you've been brought near to this access to God thanks to Jesus Christ and His work on your behalf and your faith in Him, you should proclaim that. You should talk about it. People aren't going to become Christians by osmosis. I'm a Christian, and I live by some people who aren't Christians, and they're going to become Christian. That's not the way that happens. We've got to use our words, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful or into his marvelous light. Truth reminder, God is to be praised for his mercy. He is merciful, and you have tasted that, you've seen it, you've experienced it. Proclaim it. Talk to people about it. Tell them of his mercy. Talk about the gospel. If you live around someone who's not a Christian and they've got ears, proclaim His excellencies to them. Whether they listen or not is their issue. It's our job to tell of the goodness of Jesus Christ. And now Peter offers a really strong encouragement. In verses 11 and 12. That the church, by its holiness, is light to the lost. And that Jesus is to receive the glory. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. Brothers, I urge you. It's like a loving pleading almost. Because I love you, because we're all in this thing together, I'm begging you. Go to war against the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Fight against them. He says, as sojourners and exiles, remember, this is not your home. You're merely passing through. Don't get distracted by the rewards of this place. Instead, focus on the rewards of your eternal home. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's a daily battle, and it's not a passive exercise. I think oftentimes we fall victim to, I placed my faith in Jesus, and now I'm just going to drift my way into living a holy life. That's not how it works. D.A. Carson says, people do not drift toward holiness. Peter says that your flesh literally wages war against you. The truth is that sinful nature does not go quietly. You've got to give some effort. If you knew that a thousand miles down the road from here, there was a huge reward, And all you had to do was be the first person to drive there and get it. Would you walk out to your driveway, get in the car and then just sit there hoping that your car drifted you a thousand miles down the road to get it? No, you'd get in your car and you would put in some effort toward it. That's what Peter is saying. Put in some effort empowered by the Holy Spirit given the pattern of what we see in Scripture, put in some effort to live a holy life. Why? So that even if someone outside the church wanted to say something negatively against you, they would have nothing to stand on. They could not come up with anything. And then they would glorify the Lord on the day that He returns. Give some effort. Unfortunately, It's all too easy to just give our daily allotment of energy to tons of other stuff. Instead of giving our daily allotment of energy toward that which could draw people to the goodness of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That we, collectively, as a church, would be light to the lost. That we, collectively, would look like a holy temple. That we, collectively, would look like a royal priesthood. Verses 11 and 12 here in chapter 2 serve as kind of the transition point to the rest of the letter. What Peter's going to do is he's going to give some specific instructions about certain relationships and how they should look in society. How do we submit to authority? How do we live in relationship with our spouses? How do we live in the midst of suffering? What should that look like? How is our conduct honorable in those places so that people might see and glorify the Lord? But he gives this last ditch kind of pleading with his readers to use the words of your mouth. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Use the words of your mouth to tell people of the one who saved your soul. And then use the actions of your life to validate those words. Collectively. As a group, we're all being built into a spiritual house that shows the greatness of God to the world. We're all set apart together to draw near to his presence. And we're all collectively to be light to the lost. In Peter's words, the beauty of the church in the eyes of non-believers is dependent on everyone. Not just someone. It's not the bystander effect. It's not, I get it, we're all a royal priesthood. We're all a holy temple. We're all supposed to be light to the lost, which means someone else will do it. It's, we're all supposed to be that, which means I'm supposed to be that. Think back to when you were in high school or college and you did a group project, and there was Johnny who never did anything but always got the same grade you did. Super annoying. You would stand up there to do the presentation... And everybody would do their part, and you would get the grade back, and there's Johnny with his goofy smile and his A because of all the work that you put in. Unfortunately, that's not the way the world views the church. Society at large does not see a few Christians living holy lives and think to themselves, all Christians must live holy lives, and therefore God is to be praised. Instead, the church is a lot more like guilty by association. That there might be a few people who live wildly sinful lives and claim to be Christians, and then everyone outside the church looks and says, you're all hypocrites. When we fall victim to the bystander effect and think that somebody else will take up the effort required to live a holy life, what we do is in the eyes of non-believers, we show people that we're not all that holy. Holy. That there's nothing transformational in the power of Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf. That the Holy Spirit isn't actually working and moving among us. Peter says, we got to flip that around and put in some efforts so that as a group, collectively, we can be light to the lost. That those who do not know the Lord would be able to glorify him on the day of his return because they have seen and heard the church, big C, collectively, globally, live out life as a holy temple, as a royal priesthood, as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the purpose of our holiness. That people would see the power of the gospel And be drawn to it and compelled by it. But it requires effort. It requires partnership with the Holy Spirit. It's difficult. But it's not someone else's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. Which means this. It means that we as brothers and sisters in Christ should lovingly encourage one another. And appropriately challenge one another. It means that we as brothers and sisters in Christ should listen to one another when we are lovingly encouraged and challenged in the way that we're living. It means that the way that I live my life affects the way someone else views Justin Bahaj as a Christian. It means that the way Justin Bahaj lives his life as a Christian affects the way someone else sees Kurt Huber as a Christian. It means that what we do here in America as Christians has an impact on the beauty of the gospel in another country. Because we collectively as a body are to be light to the lost. We read that and we think to ourselves, me. And there's a part of that that's true. But the reality is that we are light to the lost. We are a holy temple. We are royal priesthood. Which means that we have to fight against that bystander effect and say, no, this isn't somebody else's responsibility to take care of. It's mine for the sake of the church, for the glory of the Lord, and for the good of the gospel. We would live holy lives. And what Peter's going to do from this point forward is explain what that looks like in various relationships and in various settings in life. And so we'll begin to walk our way through that. We're going to close this morning uh, with... Mitch and Leslie leading us in one last song. Um, you can stand up. You can close close up your Bible and stand. We're going to sing the song Cornerstone. We are a holy temple and Jesus is the cornerstone. We are a royal priesthood and He has granted us access to the presence of the Lord. We are light to the lost that He would receive the glory. Christ alone, cornerstone. The weak made strong and the Savior's love. Let's sing.